All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your Dragonfire and Brimstone speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about a book that is near and very dear to my heart, Dragons of Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. This is the first Dragonlance book, and it was originally published in 1984. This book won our Patreon vote to select a role-playing game novel, and uh, it beat out a Ravenloft novel and also a Warhammer 40k novel, though it was pretty close. This one beat out the Ravenloft book by only one vote. And well, obviously, I would have been delighted to read any of the books on the ballot. I'm glad this book won, because there was a time in my life when Dragonlance was my life. Seventh grade, eighth grade, and the the first half of ninth grade were my Dragonlance years. I discovered this original trilogy, the Dragonlance Chronicles, at my local bookshop just really the summer before I started junior high, and very quickly, I was obsessed. By the time I was done with that obsession, really about halfway through my freshman year of high school, I had 32 of these books. And that's a strangely specific number, but I remember it because I thought of these books as my treasure. And and really, I was like a dragon with his horde, counting and cataloging, sometimes just waking up in the middle of the night to look at my Dragonlance books, always worried about uh, some barrel rider coming to steal them. And these books were also the cornerstone of one of my enduring friendships, my my friendship with Brent Held, who is my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our our Neil Gaiman podcast. Brent and I became friends in seventh grade because we were both reading these books. And when we were talking about doing a podcast together, really uh, just as a means of staying in each other's life as we become extraordinarily busy adults, There was a moment when that might have been a Dragonlance podcast rather than a Neil Gaiman podcast. And and who knows, that that may actually still be in the future. There may still be a chance of that to come. But all right, that is enough nostalgic preamble. Let's get into it. But just one note before we do. Here at Clay Temple Media, we really pride ourselves on our audio quality. Uh, We try to record in a good environment. We do a bit of audio engineering, and we edit out the flubs and the sneezes and so on. But you may hear a bit of coughing this episode, and I just want to assure you that I definitely love my siblings and my friends, and I'm totally not evil. Totally. You can trust me. The first thing we should note about Dragonlance is that we're dealing with a high fantasy, secondary world setting. It's not our world. It's a a completely invented, imaginary world, a la Tolkien's Middle-earth. And in this case, that's not simply a convenient example. It's actually an important point, because this world is really a descendant of Tolkien's Middle-earth. And we'll talk more specifically about that in the next segment. So this world is called Kryn, and it's a, a generic high medieval fantasy world. People have sophisticated metal weapons and armor, but there aren't any guns. People use horses and carts for transportation, it's not automobiles, and, and, and so on. You know the drill, right? And people in this world means more than just human. This is a world populated by elves and dwarves that are straight out of Tolkien, and also a humanoid species that is new to this setting, the Kender. The Kender are this Dungeons & Dragons setting's halflings, which is to say that they're a variation on hobbits. As they're depicted in this book, the, the Kender lean hard into the Tukish side of hobbits rather than the Baggins side of hobbits. They love adventure and mischief, they're, they're, they're possessed of a wanderlust, and they use a special staff called a hoopak that helps them with acrobatics. And so really, in short, the, the Kender are Bilbo Baggins as Gandalf described him to the dwarves rather than Bilbo Baggins as he really is. And we'll meet our Kender character in just a, a few moments. 
Those are the good humanoid species, the, the hero species, right? But there are also evil humanoid species, such as goblins and hobgoblins and also draconians, which uh, also are a, a new species for this setting. And the draconians are exactly what it says on the box. They're, they're humanoid dragons, right? Two, two legs, two arms, but lizardish instead of apish. And they've got wings. So it's a pretty fantastical world, and we haven't even gotten to the actual magic yet. We've done a number of high fantasy books on Atos so far, uh, possibly a disproportionate number, actually. But Kryn is the most magic-heavy setting that we've had up to this point. Magic was virtually non-existent in A Song for Arbonne, for example. And even in Conan, magic was strictly in the realm of the weird and horrific. Here, magic is just a character skill. It's something you can go to school for. And there's a standard and universal set of spells you can use. This includes Featherfall and Fireball and Magic Missile. And all of this is a kind of secular magic in which power comes from a mastery of the nature of the universe. And by using material spell components, physical spell components, and knowing the language of magic. But there is also a type of religious magic, a, a clerical magic that is granted to a practitioner by a god on really a case-by-case -case basis. And we'll have a lot more on that later. So those are the basic principles of the world here. But let's talk about the specifics. Let's talk about where we are. Let's get a brief social and political history here that can let us set the stage. Like Tolkien, we begin with the familiar. Our story opens in a human town that is simple and, and e really easy for us to sink our imaginative teeth into. And these people are just like us. Uh, they're basically Americans circa 1980. But we learn right away, though, that this is a world that underwent a dramatic change 300 years ago and is now in the midst of another dramatic change. What happened 300 years ago is called the Cataclysm, and it is exactly that. It was a, a moment of great destruction. In this case, that destruction came at the hands of the gods, uh, called here the old gods, uh, these old gods who were punishing humanity for a general state of wickedness. And by the way, I should say that this per of Kryn that I'm giving now is based only on this very first book. So I am glossing over a lot that will be expanded on in later books. Okay, so this punishment, this cataclysm came in the form of a fiery mountain that was flung down from the heavens. Basically, it was a meteoroid that hit the world and caused serious destruction. Whole cities were destroyed, and the impact crater changed the water levels on the planet and, and created a new sea in that crater. And these gods are called the old gods now because they disappeared after the cataclysm. No one has heard from them in 300 years, and they're presumed gone. And their worship is really now in the process of being replaced by a new religion that is also reshaping the political communities in this part of Kryn. And Weiss and Hickman explain this to us in what is really a great example of the type of world building we get in this book, really the type of world building that we get in most RPG novels. So I'm just going to read this section to you because I think it's so illustrative. Five years ago, the men calling themselves Seekers, We Seek the New Gods, had been a loose-knit organization of clerics practicing their new religion in the towns of Haven, Solace, and Gateway. These clerics had been misguided, Tannis believed, but at least they had been honest and sincere. In the intervening years, however, the clerics had gained more and more status as their religion flourished. Soon they became concerned not so much with glory in the afterlife as with power on Kryn. They took over the governing of the towns with the people's blessing. And that's where we are. That's what we need to know as this book opens— so let's actually get to that opening. Let's get to the, the plot here, the story. 
The story begins with a prologue in the town of Solace. Uh, we just heard that in the passage I quoted. Solace is a great fantasy town. I mean, it's a great name just to begin with, right? But it's also a town that is constructed above the ground. It's uh, situated among the canopies of fantasy trees called Valenwoods. And this was a survival strategy during the Cataclysm, so the inhabitants could protect themselves from brigands and general rapscallions. So the buildings of Solace are up in the trees, and they're connected by rope bridges, and this alone makes it a place that I'd like to move to. But what really cements Solace in my imagination, and in my heart as well, is the inn. Yes, like any classic D&D adventure, this story starts at an inn. In this case, it's the Inn of the Last Home, which is owned by Odic, who is famous for his spiced potatoes, and the inn is staffed by a young woman named Tika Whalen. And I love the description that we get of the inn. Here's what Weiss and Hickman give us, and it's, it's just magnificent. All right, here it is. It was getting harder to keep up the old inn. There was a lot of love rubbed into the warm finish of the wood, but even love and tallow couldn't hide the cracks and the splits in the well-used tables or prevent a customer from sitting on the occasional splinter. The inn of the last home was not fancy, not like some she'd heard about in Haven. It was comfortable. The living tree in which it was built wrapped its ancient arms around it lovingly while the walls and fixtures were crafted around the boughs of the tree with such care as to make it impossible to tell where nature's work left off and man's began. The bar seemed to ebb and flow like a polished wave around the living wood that supported it. The stained glass and the window panes cast welcoming flashes of vibrant color across the room. And look, while these are not the most elegant or evocative sentences that I've ever read, the overall effect of this description is indeed comforting. Right? This is a place that I would like to hang out and would like to bring all my friends to. And that's why we're here. The Inn of the Last Home was the hangout of our heroes when they lived in Solace five years ago, and they'll soon be returning for a rendezvous. But before that meeting can happen, everything has to be just right. And an old man has come to the inn to make sure that the furniture is all in the correct place so that our heroes will be in some epic shadows for the inciting incident. And when the barkeep, Tika, asks him if he's throwing a party, he says... It will be a party such as the world of Kryn has not seen since before the Cataclysm. And of course, right, this is a double entendre. The old man, who, by the way, is much more than he seems. Uh, this old man is not talking about a social gathering, right? He's talking about an RPG party, a party of adventurers whose skill sets will complement each other in a series of boss fights that will save the world. So let's go meet the members of our party here. First up is Tannis Halfelvin. He's not explicitly called a ranger in this book, but that's what he is. And he is also our main point of view character. And he's got a complicated love life. Next is Flint, the grumpy old dwarf who has no patience for Tasselhoff, the kender who is the party's thief or rogue if you prefer. And the rest of the party will be humans. These are Karaman, the big and gullible and sweet fighter, and also his twin brother, Raislin, the mage. Raceland is probably the most iconic character in all of Dragonlance, though here in this first book, much of his nature is still a real mystery. Although he is Kermund's twin, he is the exact opposite of him in, in every sense. In order to become a mage of a, a certain level, he's had to undergo some magical trials which have left his body shattered and, and, and really just broken in some way. He's got a serious cough that cannot be cured, and he looks almost skeletal. But most startling of all is that his pupils now look like hourglasses, and he actually sees time happening around him. He sees people decaying slowly in front of him. Raceland also wears red robes, and this is an important feature of the magic system in Dragonlance. 
Mages can use magic that is either good, evil, or neutral, but they have to dress accordingly, and the red robes here indicate that Raceland has chosen neutral, which means he might be mostly good, or he might be mostly evil. And that question is going to be the, the thrust of his character arc. Now, finally, we meet Sturm, who is the, the last of our party and the group's paladin. He's also got a pretty sweet mustache. Now, the deal is this. These guys all used to be an adventuring party that was based here in Solace. But five years ago, they decided that they'd outleveled this zone, basically, and needed to go off on their own to have some solo quests. And the impetus here is that they were looking for signs of the old gods somehow, or, or just otherwise trying to heal the world from the, the cataclysm. But when they left, they had agreed to meet back here and report. And of course, none of them has anything positive to say, right? The, the, the world only seems to be getting worse, and they aren't sure what to do about it. Fortunately for them, they are about to get an inciting incident that will do more than enough to satiate their ennui and give them something to do about this diminishing state of the world. As the party is enjoying their ale, there's a commotion involving a pair of barbarians. One of them, the woman, has a blue crystal staff that the police have been looking for. And of course, these are the police of the new government of the, the Seekers, this uh, new religion that is busy creating a theocracy. What's worse is that these police are goblins, which is definitely not cool, because goblins are evil humanoids and really shouldn't be anywhere near a human town. But all right, so the goblins want this blue crystal staff, the barbarians won't give it to them, and there's an incident. Our heroes intervene, they help the barbarians escape, and now they themselves are also in trouble with the law, the goblin police, people who really probably shouldn't be the law at all. So who are these barbarians from the plains? Goldmoon is the daughter of their people's chieftain, and Riverwind is her boyfriend from the wrong side of the tracks. In order to prove himself worthy of marrying a princess, Riverwind went off and had an adventure, and he came back with this blue crystal staff. He doesn't remember anything about the adventure, other than that it was horrific, uh, there were monsters, and he only barely survived, and he uses a lot of Lovecraftian phrases here as he describes this. But somehow he got this staff which, it turns out, will heal people. But for some reason, the Seeker's theocracy wants to take it from them. Okay, so because this is the inciting incident of the story, our heroes want to get Goldmoon and Riverwind to safety, and that means escaping from Solace. So, they do. But along the way, they make a number of discoveries. First is that something is wrong with the stars. Some of the constellations are just missing— and specifically, it's the constellations that have to do with some of the old gods, and even more specifically, the chief goddess of evil. And the second thing is that they encounter some strange people in robes on a road through the woods. And these turn out to be draconians, which is a new species that no one has encountered before. And they're evil, and they're after the staff. And it's pretty clear that something massively evil is going on around here, and that if the bad guys want the staff, then it's probably a good idea to make sure that they don't get it. Next, they meet a unicorn, who tells them that they have to go back to the evil place where Riverwind got the staff, and they have to get there fast. Then the unicorn summons some Pegasi to carry them to that evil place to make sure that they get there on time. They had 48 hours to get there. And if you haven't read this book, then you might think I'm making that part up. But I'm not. And I'm going to have more to say about this scene later on. Okay, so all of that was Act 1. And that puts us on pace for this to be the longest recap of all time. But it actually won't be, because now that we know about our setting and we know who our characters are, we can really let the formula of the next two acts do most of the work here. 
And the structure of the book from here on out is that each act is an RPG adventure, and, and each of those is part of a larger campaign. So each is going to be a discrete story that is going to focus on one location and is going to culminate in uh, an epic boss fight there. And what we need to know before we deal with the first of these is that the old gods are back, or at least the evil ones are, and they've brought their dragons with them. And this is bad news if you aren't evil. And so the heroes are now trying to stop them. And the first step is to get to the ancient city of Zak Zaroth. Uh, this is a city that was ruined during the Cataclysm. And this is where Riverwind got that blue crystal staff, which it turns out is a tool of Meshachal, who is the goddess of healing among the, the pantheon of the old gods. And the reason they're going back is that they have to find the discs of Meshachal, which contain the teachings of the old gods and are going to be necessary in order to restore the true faith which it turns out is the only way to fight the forces of evil, right? You have to restore the religion that believes in the old gods to, to fight this new theocracy that is really a heresy. And that's how we're going to defeat the forces of evil. And when our heroes get to the city, they see right away that it's a camp for an army of draconians and also a serious business dragon. Obviously, the discs of Meshachal can't be located anywhere except in the dragon's treasure hoard, and so they have to defeat this dragon in order to get this holy treasure. And so they get to work catching a plan, and, and you can really imagine yourself sitting around a gaming table with your friends during these chapters. But our heroes actually end up getting captured before they can even put their plan into effect. And when they're brought to the dragon... Goldmoon uses all the power that the staff has in order to kill this dragon. She drowses the whole place in blue light. But in order to do this, Goldmoon has to give up her own life. And this is a, a sacrifice that she makes knowingly and, and willingly. It's not an accident here, right? She knows that this is the only way to save her companions, and it's the only way to bring back the true gods. And she believes in that mission. She is on this holy mission. But in the end, actually, everything is going to work out for Goldmoon because Meshachal resurrects her. And Meshachal even then imbues Goldmoon with a, a sacred power. So Goldmoon is alive and well, and now she is a disciple of Meshachal. She's a, a true cleric. And cleric was really the one character class that the party was missing. On top of this, now, she also has a special mission from the old gods, the, the, the true gods. And that is that it's her job now to find the person in all of Kryn who has the strength and the wisdom to unite the peoples of the world in order to fight the forces of evil. And then when she finds that person, she's supposed to give that person the discs of Meshachal. And this last bit is really important because it turns out that none of the heroes, and really nobody else either, can actually read the text that is here on the discs of Meshachal. It's in a language that is completely unknown to them, but presumably there is someone out there who will be able to read them. And that's the end of the first adventure. So the story resets now for this second adventure with the party back in Solace. They're, they're back at the end of the last home. And the specifics here don't really matter, but they get arrested by the evil guys, then they escape, and then they end up in the elven land of Qualanesti. And Qualanesti is where Tannis is from, and we learn here that his mother is elven, and it's Tannis' father who is human. And in this last part of the book, Tannis basically turns into Spock here. He's conflicted about his identity. Does he want to be an elf, or does he want to be a human? And we also see that he's regarded as an outsider by some of the elves, maybe many of the elves. And in his younger days, he was picked on for being different, for being half-human. But mostly, Tannis's confliction here is about romance. Tannis was romantically involved with the daughter of the elves of Qualanesti, and 
this was something of a problem, and it still is something of a problem, in fact. And that's not really going to get resolved until much later in this trilogy. So I think for now, let's just get back to the evil. Since our heroes are here, the elves decide that they may as well have a Council of Elrond to explain the plot to everybody. And that plot is this. The evil armies have taken over most of the human lands now. Even though our heroes have already killed a dragon and they've got the discs of Meshachal, things have not gone well for the good guys. And now those armies of evil are coming for the elves. But the heroes think that they can create a diversion by going into the belly of the beast. And so they travel to an old abandoned fortress on the edge of the kingdom where the evil armies are amassing, and they have another dungeon crawl. And this culminates with a boss fight, as it must, right? That's the genre we're in here. And this time, the boss fight is with the leader of these evil armies, the dragon high lord Verminard, who is an evil cleric, right? To be the antithesis of Goldmoon, who is a good cleric. So the heroes kill him, and they kill his dragon too, and this does in fact save the elven kingdom, at least for a little while. And along the way here, on this dungeon crawl, Tannis found the tomb of elven King Arthur, and now he has his magical sword. There was also an important but frankly boring subplot about whether someone in the party is working for the bad guys, and the heroes also free some slaves in the process of getting to the boss fight here. And this last bit, this bit with the slaves, is really actually quite important because during this incident, Goldmoon heals a seeker priest who is then convinced of the the truth of the old religion and embraces it and actually becomes the first cleric of Paladine. Uh, And Paladine is the chief god of good and, and really probably just god, actually, in some sense. And Goldmoon gives this guy the discs of Meshachal, though we don't here in this book quite yet know where this is going. And in fact, that is how this first volume in this epic trilogy comes to an end. All right. Okay. So obviously, I guess I lied when I said that this was not going to be the longest recap ever. But I guess when you have a new world, you've got a magic system and a party of eight principal characters, uh, the whole thing gets a little wordy. But I think for now, we we can move right into our themes and motifs segment where I will try to be a little bit briefer. As usual, there are two big topics that I want to explore here, and I'm going to start with the long shadows of Tolkien and Robert E. Howard. During my formative years, Dragonlance was fantasy. I mean, it's just what the genre was for me. And and I'm not the only one who feels that way, and especially if we just broaden that out to the TSR RPG novels in general, and we can include Forgotten Realms in this. And I think that a massive part of this success here, right, of the the way in which these TSR RPG novels were really able to to corner the the fantasy market and set the tone for what the genre was for a lot of us. And so I think a big part of why these books were so successful in doing that is that these books blend the most imaginative elements of Tolkien's brand of fantasy with the storytelling techniques of Howard's brand of fantasy. And I don't want to belabor this point, but I do think that it's worth taking stock of some of the ways that this book draws on. On Tolkien. And the most obvious element here is that the, the elves and dwarves of Dragonlance are Tolkien's elves and dwarves. And even the Kender are a riff on D&D's halflings, which are just hobbits. They just didn't want to be sued for it. The town of Solace itself is a mix of Bree and Lothlorien. The, the Valenwood trees here essentially are a rebranded version of Malorn trees from Lothlorien. And even the Inn of the Last Home feels very much like the Prancing Pony, even though the name itself is actually taken from Rivendell. It's from Elrond's last homely house. But that's on purpose, right? We're meant to make that connection. This is trying to evoke the feeling of these places for us. 
Qualinesti, the elven kingdom we go to in this book, is also a riff on Lothlorien. And we get a whole deal here about how elves and dwarves used to have better relations than they do. I mean, it's straight out of The Hobbit, right? And the elves here in this book, we learn, have an ancient hero named Kith Kanan. Uh, this is the guy whose tomb Tannis finds. He gets his sword here in the book, his magical sword. But this may, but this character may as well be Tolkien's Gil-Galad, the ancient elven king that Aragorn has a poem about. Even the romance here between Tannis and Lorana, who's the, the daughter of the elven ruler, uh, this relationship is a punched-up version of the romance between Aragorn and Arwen. And, and Tannis is basically just Aragorn in this book. And he even picks up an important old sword in this book, just in case anyone comes asking for his Aragorn credentials. And I know a lot of people would brand this as a list of criticisms. They would argue that this level of obvious derivativeness is cheap and unoriginal. But I completely disagree. For me, this was always a selling point of these books, and I think it was for most of my fellow nerds back in these days, too. What drew us to these books, what drew us to Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms, and, and really what drew us to gaming in general, was the familiarity of these worlds combined with just a bit of novelty, but just a bit, right? The creativity of these books wasn't in coming up with entirely new fantasy components we'd never seen before. No, the creativity was in rearranging these classic components. Uh, the creativity really was in putting them in new combinations, in new juxtapositions, tweaking them here and there, and occasionally adding a little bit of something that was genuinely new. And that's really not any different from what Virgil did when he decided to mash up both the Iliad and the Odyssey for a story about Aeneas. But nobody calls Virgil a hack, right? And maybe another way that we could think of this is as sampling, which was also a real big deal here in the early 1980s in the, the nascent hip-hop scene, where the idea is to take a familiar background and do something new on top of it. All right, so that's Tolkien Talk. Now let's deal with Robert A. Howard, who I think really supplies the storytelling archetypes for this book, and really also for most RPG novels and for role-playing gaming in general. And what this storytelling style brings to the table is the fast-paced and really action-oriented storytelling that's built around a series of plot points. And in particular, there is a high level of intrigue in Dragons of Autumn Twilight, whether that's as we're wondering who's going to turn out to be the traitor and secretly hoping it won't be Raceland, or whether it's the machinations of the villains. And we get many scenes in this book from the perspective of the villains, by the way, and we see their own interpersonal dynamics at play here in this story. And on top of this, this is a world that feels just more bustly than Middle-earth ever did. It's a world with far more mobility. It's a world that allows for secondary characters, and really, maybe we should call them NPCs or, or non-player characters. This is a world that allows for NPCs to have motivations that are mundane and, and small-scale. Uh, this is something that we talked about when we did our Conan episode a, a few months ago. It's really one of the elements that makes Sword and Sorcery what it is. But at the same time, in these RPG books, and in these Dragonlance books specifically, these elements have been transposed from the solitary hero model of sword and sorcery and put into this fellowship mold of the Lord of the Rings. And so the whole thing becomes a highly accessible body of literature, and, and really especially for kids in junior high, right? All right, well, we made quick work of that, as I promised we would. So let's get to the second topic that I want to talk about today. And this is the much bigger topic, so we'll see how quick I really am actually being when we get to the end here. When I was in junior high, when I read this book for the first time, I completely missed all of the Christian motifs in Dragonlance. But it turns out that Dragonlance is almost as much of a Christian fantasy as the Chronicles of Narnia are. 
And I think to to show that to you, let's just start by cataloging some of the religious elements in this story. And I think it's clear, at least I hope it's clear, that the entire plot of this story is driven by gods, and the setting itself is shaped entirely by religious concerns. Uh, this is a world that is still being reshaped following an act of divine retribution. And even the first things that we learn about the world concern the establishment of a new religion that is also taking on a political role and really is establishing a theocracy here. And there's a real need for something like this in this world. We don't actually see that much of it, but we get glimpses of the extent to which the inhabitants of Kryn just feel abandoned by their gods. Uh, They feel that there's a real emptiness to their lives because the gods are no longer present in the world. And there's a a conversation that our our party of heroes has that I think can really illustrate this. So let's just take a look at this. And this conversation, I should say, takes place during their first adventure. Uh, This is when Goldmoon is discovering Meshackle and really getting started on the path to becoming Meshackle's cleric. Uh, Tasselhoff, the, the, the Kender rogue here, Tasselhoff says, Let's trust these old gods, since it seems we have found them. And Flint, uh, the dwarf here, he takes offense at this characterization because, and and, and here's what he says, I'm going to be quoting Flint here. He says, the elves never lost them, neither did the dwarves. Rayarks is one of the ancient gods. We have worshipped him since before the cataclysm. But now it's Tannis' turn, and and he has perhaps a more sophisticated understanding of the relationship between mortals and gods on Kryn than, than either of his two counterparts do. And he says, worship? Or cry to Rayorks in despair because your people were shut out of the kingdom under the mountain. The elves are no better. We cry to the gods when our homeland was laid waste. We know of the gods, and we honor their memories, as one would honor the dead. The elven clerics vanished long ago, as did the dwarven clerics. And Tannis is not the only character here who's thinking that maybe it wasn't the gods who abandoned the people but rather the people who abandoned the gods. And we see another example of this in Riverwind's backstory. Goldmoon's father, you'll recall that Goldmoon's father is the leader of their political community. So Goldmoon's father announced that Goldmoon was the goddess of their people. Uh, So another kind of theocracy here in the the backstory. Uh, This one a little more ancient Egypt in character than the, the one in Solace is, but a theocracy nonetheless. But Riverwind would not accept this. He refused even to be blessed by Goldmoon, and he said, Man cannot make gods of other men. And, of course, it's Riverwind, who later will find the Blue Crystal Staff, right? He's the one who's going to find this artifact of one of the true gods, one of the old gods here. And the picture that is being painted here is that humans have turned away from the gods. And I can't read this scene with Riverwind without immediately thinking of Moses' anger when he sees the Israelites worshipping false idols. Weiss and Hickman really hammer home this idea that the cataclysm was not actually some awful thing that the gods did, but in fact was something that people deserved because of their wickedness. Uh, They really hammer home this idea when Meshackle speaks directly to Goldmoon. And this passage is is quite long, but I think it's worth reading in its entirety here to to illustrate all of this. So here's what the the goddess Meshackle says. Do not be ashamed of your questioning, beloved disciple. It was your questioning that led you to us. And it is your anger that will sustain you through the many trials ahead. You come seeking the truth, and you shall receive it. The gods have not turned away from man. It is man who turned away from the true gods. Kryn is about to face its greatest trial. Men will need the truth more than ever. You, my disciple, must return the truth and power of the true gods to man. It is time to restore the balance of the universe. Evil now has tipped the scales. For, as the gods of good have returned to man... So have the gods of evil, constantly striving for men's souls. 
The Queen of Darkness has returned, seeking that which will allow her to walk freely in this land once more. To gain the power to defeat them, you will need the truth of the gods. This is the greatest gift of which you were told. So, there's a lot going on in this passage, including the revelation that there's actually a spiritual war for the souls of individuals at the core of the cosmology of this speculative world. But what matters most, I think, is that the quest of this fantasy story is proselytizing or evangelizing in nature. Goldmoon is a disciple of the gods, and her mission is to spread the good news of their return, right? Goldmoon is uh, an apostle here, even more than just a disciple. She's an evangelist. She's a preacher, and that's her sacred mission. That's the mission our heroes are on. But it turns out that that's not all that's going on with Goldmoon here. In fact, we're really just scratching the surface so far. It's really just a few pages after this that Goldmoon knowingly sacrifices herself in order to destroy an agent of spiritual evil, uh, an evil dragon here. And she does this to save her friends and to recover the last copy of the Holy Scriptures, these discs of Meshachal. And she does this with holy blue light. And then she's resurrected. And when she's resurrected, she's made even more powerful. In fact, up to this point, it was actually just the staff that held the power. But once Goldmoon is resurrected, it is Goldmoon herself who is, in fact, imbued with holy power, imbued with uh, sacred magic. And, you know, this is Jesus, right? An agent of God, a healer, a preacher, sacrificed himself in order to save humanity, resurrected. And in his capacity as preacher, Jesus mostly speaks in parables and we get that with Goldmoon, too, who delivers what I'm going to call the parable of the gem near the end of the book. But Goldmoon is even more than a Christ figure in this story. In fact, she's also the Virgin Mary. She's also Christ's mother. Weiss and Hickman make this quite clear later in the book when they make a huge deal of the fact that Goldmoon is a virgin and that she will remain so until after marriage. And once you get to this conversation, and it's a conversation that seems to come out of nowhere, a conversation about the virginness of one of the members of this party, it's at this point, too, that you suddenly realize that the blueness of the staff and the blueness of Goldmoon's holy power is not just because blue is cool. It's not just because blue is the color of good guys in Star Wars. It's because blue is the special color of the Virgin Mary in Christian art. So... Goldmoon is Jesus. Goldmoon is also the Virgin Mary. But Weiss and Hickman are not actually yet done imbuing Goldmoon with the attributes of characters from the Gospels. Goldmoon, it turns out, is also something of a John the Baptist figure here, in that her primary mission from Meshachal is to go find the person who will unite the people of Kryn against the forces of evil. And she's supposed to give him this last copy of the Holy Scriptures that no one can even read anymore. And so, in this sense, she's looking for a savior figure. She's looking for a messiah of sorts. And at the end of this book, she does actually give the discs to someone. This is a, a man named Elliston, whom she heals and essentially baptizes as a cleric of the old gods. So, Goldmoon is Jesus, she's the Virgin Mary, and she's also John the Baptist, all rolled into one. And that's a lot, but we're actually still not done with this yet. There are a few more things I want to say about Dragonlance as a work of Christian fantasy. There is a moral element to all of this as well. It's not just a matter of symbols and, and character archetypes. Faith and belief are stressed again and again as, as virtues here. 
Bold faith is how Goldman was able to slay the dragon, for example. Service and sacrifice are presented here as holy virtues and, and holy actions. The unicorn character, who is maybe a god of some sort himself, uh, this unicorn character tells our heroes that lives are measured not by gain, but by giving. And this means both charity and service here. And we see this with Elliston as well, who cares for others above himself. And then finally, free will is a huge part of the cosmology of Kryn, and it's a huge part of the plot of this story. The good gods, in particular, are really invested in people choosing to be good. They're really invested in people embracing these values on their own, not, not through any act of compulsion by the gods themselves. People have a choice. They have free will. And every choice, every individual choice, matters. Now, I want to be clear that free will is actually not a universal Christian concept. Uh, in fact, there are significant branches of Christianity that do not believe in free will. But free will is at the heart of the theology of both the Catholic and the Mormon forms of Christianity. Uh, and I bring this up here because Tracy Hickman is a devout Mormon. And so free will matters to him, and it matters to his view of the world. And we see that at play in this story, for sure. But really, I bring this up because I want to talk about the discs of Meshachal now. These are discs made of platinum, and on them is inscribed the sacred text of the old gods. And this is basically the Book of Mormon, right? This is the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith found inscribed in a mysterious ancient language on a number of gold plates that he found buried in the ground. And his discovery of these plates was aided by an angel for the purpose of restoring the true Church of Christ in the world. And this is literally the same mission that Goldmoon is on. And so she's also Joseph Smith, just to add another Christian religious figure into the list of figures that Goldmoon is representing here in this story. All right, we're getting to the end of the show here. So let's talk strengths and weaknesses. And in this book has a lot of both. Let's start with the strengths. This book has great pacing, it makes excellent use of character archetypes, and it puts a really interesting, really creative spin on Tolkien's brand of fantasy settings. And I do think that this setting is magnificent. It's sprawling in both time and space, but it's also extremely local at the same time, right? Solace feels like a real place. All in all, this book feels like an awesome D&D campaign, right? It feels like the campaign that I always wished my friends and I could have pulled off, but never could. And in the end, that's really the brief for this book, or really, it's the brief for any RPG novel. As a class of book, as, as a type of book, RPG novels are supposed to feel like a role-playing game, and this first Dragonlance book just nails it. But for all its strengths, and, and for all that I love this book, it does also have some serious weaknesses, some really dreadful writing, and, and just poor storytelling. First, there is a lot of unnecessary location hopping that requires some really silly narrative interventions. And the most flagrant of these is when the story requires the heroes travel a thousand miles in two days in order to get to Zaxaroth. And this problem really could have been solved in a number of ways, such as simply changing the location, getting rid of the ticking clock, which never actually amounts to anything anyway. But for some reason, Weiss and Hickman seemed really married to their map, or really married to this clock. And so in order to get their characters from one place to another, they have supernatural beings intervene and just whisk them away on Pegasi, right? Whisk them away on flying horses from Greek mythology. And this business is just entirely unmotivated. It's not grounded in the world in any way. 
And I know they've taken their cue for this from Tolkien's eagles, right? Having flying creatures kind of move the party along in some way. But when the eagles help out Thorin and company in The Hobbit, it's entirely grounded in their own motivations. And it's not something that they're just doing because the gods of the plot call for it. Here, what we get is really just dungeon master or, or, or game master intrusion, right? It just feels like your player character's aren't following the clues, aren't following the cues to do what you, as the designer of this awesome adventure, want them to do. And so you kind of force them to do it. And that is a thing that probably all of us who have played a role-playing game have experienced before. But that's kind of the benefit of writing a book rather than playing a role-playing game is that you're writing about characters. You don't actually have any players who are doing this. They don't have wills of their own. So they could have just resolved this by changing some of their their plot. It would have been a very easy fix. And I found this whole part of the narrative really just jarring and, and really disruptive. And speaking of jarring and disruptive, wow, does this book shift points of view. I got metaphorical whiplash from the number of times that we change point of view in a single scene. Uh, I couldn't actually tell you who the protagonist of this book is or really whose story this is because that switches from paragraph to paragraph sometimes. And, and to be fair, I do think that this is a feature of the RPG brief here, right? We as the readers need to feel like each member of the party is, in fact, a player character here. But it often just feels like what we've done here is roll for initiative. And now, in order, we're going to just check in with what each and every character is thinking and feeling about a particular plot development. And while that might make for a great role-playing game, it does not make for the best reading. But look, even with these flaws, I enjoyed this book a lot. And, and not just out of nostalgia either. And I have to say too that reading this book again actually got me thinking about how much I really would love to do a dedicated Dragonlance podcast. And I tease that at the top of the show too, but it's not really all that likely to happen. But I don't know, maybe I'll make a Patreon goal out of that. And of course, if you'd like us to read the next installment of this story or Really, if you'd like us to read any other Dragonlance book here on ATOS, there are mechanisms for that. You you can either commission that as a bonus episode, and you know, just a reminder, you do get a discount for that on Patreon. You even get a free commission, actually, at some levels on Patreon. But at other levels of Patreon support, you get to nominate books for our votes. So if more Dragonlance books here on ATOS is something you'd be interested in, you've got some mechanisms for letting us know. And while I've taken a little detour here into talking about the network as a whole, let me just take another second or two here to plug something else that we've done on the network. And that is a team-up episode of Elder Sign that Brent and Brandon and I did in which we talk about role-playing games and the intersection of weird fiction. And really what we did on that episode, that was about two years ago now, I guess, uh, really what we did on that episode was just talk about some of our favorite role-playing game settings and how they have weird fiction elements to them. And we, we talk about some mechanics and gameplay elements as well. Well, we had a lot of fun doing that episode. I think you'll have a lot of fun listening to it. So go check that out if you're into role-playing games. Well, all right. On that note, I'm going to bring this review to a close, but I really do hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and the motifs, also the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on, but especially on what I left out in this episode. I actually only talked about half of what was on my list for the themes and motifs segment, and I would love to talk about those items on the forum with you as well. And in particular, the biggest thing that I, I wanted to have time to get to but just didn't is the notion that goblins are evil simply because they are goblins. Uh, this, of course, was something that I accepted without any thought at all when I was 12. But on this read, I was really struck by how quickly the heroes turned to violence to solve their problems. Uh, right at the start of the book, they just kill a bunch of goblins who are trying to arrest them for violating a curfew. 
And these goblins are the legitimate police force. But the heroes justify what is essentially cop killing by pointing out that killing goblins doesn't count as murder. And this is a question that actually explicitly comes up in the the text. And I would really love to, to talk about it with you on the forum. But all right, that is really going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. If you'd like to support the show, if you'd like to support the network, if you'd like to tell us to do more Dragonlance books, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Uh, you can find us there on patreon.com slash Media. And next time on ATOS, we're going to be reading The Languages of Pow by Jack Vance. I'm very excited about this book. Jack Vance is a massive deal for Gene Wolfe and also in weird fiction. So he's pretty important for really what the network as a whole does. And I'm excited to get to this book. But until then, I hope that you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.